Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. We are online at what-s-left.webnode.com. You can find the link to our blog in the episode notes. Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, and share your episode, favorite episode, and jot down our information wherever you find this episode. Uh, my name is Andy Libson. I'm a teacher and socialist from Oakland. Uh, and today, as, as always, we're joined by uh, uh, Kenny Zapata, a socialist and organizer in San Francisco, and again, Jessica, uh, who teaches at English Literature and Writing and Environmental Humanities at the University in Pacific North, Northwest. Um, we are not joined by Jake, but you'll notice um, we have a special guest. Her name is Amanda. She is a mother of four in San Mateo County who has been a teacher, a costume designer. She's worked in film and also worked in infectious diseases at Stanford. So she's done a lot of things. Um, and I know Amanda from uh, our work in Workers and Students for Choice. Um, and I, when I started my journey around all this data stuff, COVID stuff, um, I had questions about the COVID vaccine, but I didn't really know much about those other vaccines, that, the things that made people be described as anti-vax. Um, and I would not have described myself as anti-vax, but now I am. And I think it's meeting people like Amanda, um, and as well as looking at my own research on this, that's really helped me get there. So I asked Amanda to join us today to talk about how she came to those beliefs, um, and just a little bit about what she has come to understand about the world, about the world of vaccines, and just the world in general. Um, so thank you, Amanda, for joining us today. Thank you. So Amanda, why don't you start off and just say a little bit about yourself uh, that you know either we don't know or people who are listening wouldn't know, and stuff that might help them understand how you came to your views and beliefs. Okay, so my my start with this whole vaccine stuff um, is kind of similar to a lot of other stories when you're like listening to vaccine injury stories. They all kind of sound like a broken record, but um, my I started with this back in 2000, kind of researching more in 2003, but in 2000, I had my first son and I was kind of a young mom and my mom worked in pediatrics. So knew all everyone at the clinic she worked at. And I took my oldest in at two months, the standard two months well visit that we sometimes joke as if you take your kids to the well visit. It's actually a sick visit because <laughs> they'll get sick later. And and so you're always kind of worried like, oh, what's what to expect? But, you know, this is the normal thing you do when you have your baby. You go in for all of these baby well checks. There's always two months, four months, six months. So I took him in and at that is the first time that you get a vaccine really for your children. I should step back that my mother, you know, in the hospital when your baby's born, right there, first day of life, they give them a hep B shot, hepatitis shot. And my mother had um, told me not to get that shot. Like, don't do it. There's no reason for it. You know, we've seen some things in the clinic. I don't agree with this shot. So I didn't get that shot, but I didn't have any question of the other ones. I mean, um, <clears throat> I hadn't gotten vaccine myself till I was older be just because we were poor and I didn't have health insurance. So I'd been through kind of the childhood diseases, but, you know, um, for my son, this was kind of what you did. So I got his shot and it, the first shot um, in 2000 that you would get at two months is the, it's the Tdap shot. 
the tetanus, diphtherias, and, and acellular pertussis shot. And um, when he got it, he got, I started to take him home and I noticed he was having some problems breathing and he got really sick and had a high fever crying. And um, that fever lasted for quite some time and he was struggling to breathe. So I immediately kind of thought, I wonder if it was a shot because you've got this healthy two month old baby, you haven't done anything different. And now they're having, they're sick, they're not breathing right. And he was coughing so hard he would throw up. And the doctor told me, oh no, it's not the vaccine. You know, it's like, could, could it be that the vaccine makes the kids sick? Cause you know, they tell you expect a fever, expect these things, you know, soreness at the site. And, you know, I was told that, no, it's not the vaccine. Um, it's, he's having a problem with the breast milk, you, you know? And he's not eating and it's the breast milk that's doing this to him. And um, I waited a couple of weeks and we ended up, you know, he was kind of getting better, but the cough never healed. And they, um, you know, again, I was told it was an allergy to the milk and he was put on breathing treatments. And I had to actually make a special bed for him so he could sit up. He couldn't lie on his back. Otherwise he would choke on his own air. And I had to have a breathing monitor. So I would monitor his breath so he wouldn't stop breathing and it would alarm. So I was a very, I had a very sick kid after that. And, and, um, and how, long is, was this, how long is this process you're describing? Is this months that you're, that you're talking about at this point? Oh yeah. And this went on indefinitely. I was doing these treatments until he was three years old. Okay. So go ahead. Um, oh, and Kenny. Question about also time frame, like what year are we talking about? We're talking about in the so he was born in the end of two thousand, and he had a shot in the early part of it was in February two thousand one. So he's born at the end of December. He had a shot in February. So you know, I I had this you know sickly kid, and I was told, hey, it's normal for children to have ear ear infections, at least six or seven ear infections in the first year of life. I don't know if this has changed now, but that was the, you know, going around, they'll have at least six or seven ear infections and pneumonia is super common for babies. And unfortunately the shot had given him kind of a lung damage in the left lung. And so he was, anytime he got a cough or a cold, he would get pneumonia. So that first year, I think he had pneumonia at least once a month. And we were on some kind of trying to clear out the lungs and you know, giving him a lot of nebulizer treatments. I had to do six a day. So I was up at night and I had this alarm and I would just sleep with my, my, I couldn't leave him. I was terrified he would stop breathing. Right. And after this, I really didn't think it was the vaccine. I mean, I was like a lot of parents who, who go through kind of the spirit experience and you're kind of like, you just trust your doctor. I was young and my mom was in pediatrics. They totally trusted it. So it wasn't until I had, um, I have a, a twin sister and she had her child and went and got that same shot. And she, by the time she got her daughter in the car and home, her daughter had turned blue and stopped breathing and the, at the DTAP, same two month shot, the first shot. And she, her daughter was on a breathing monitor and they're really hard to sleep through, you know? So I had this sickly kid for, you know, for this, she had her child two years after mine. And I have this 
kid who's still on breathing treatments and very sickly, like constant pneumonia, constant air, air infections. And her, her, her daughter turns blue, stops breathing and is on these monitors, which just alarm, you know, if the baby moves. So you, you never are like in a relaxed state with your, your child. Um, and she was like, you know, I think it was the shot because right at, you know, this is the same thing happening twice. And the only thing I can think of is that, that Tdap shot, you know? So, um, I was like, you know, I think there might be something to this. Now at the time, this is like 2002 and broaching into 2003, 2004, we are starting to try and do some research on it. And I had, um, just moved to California and initially I was going to work. I, I got a job at Stanford university and I was going to go work in the humanities, but they were during, it was during a hiring freeze. And I had a friend who was microbiologist and he worked in infectious diseases. And he said, Hey, I can, I can get you this like administrative spot to kind of like, you're going to help. They need somebody to help with like grants and whatever needs to be done with, um, you know, new, uh, postdoc hires and all this stuff, you know, so I can get you a job in there where we were waiting for that position over in the humanities to reopen up as starting as a temp. So I wouldn't be under those restrictions of the hiring freeze. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll work there. And so, um, when I got in there, you know, it was right at this kind of serendipitous moment where me and my sister are starting to question the vaccines. And we did ask my mom, we're like, Hey, you know, is this possible? And my mom said, you know what, let me go over to my medical journals. And, um, I do actually have an uncle that works, worked, he doesn't anymore, but he worked for NIH and he's a very well-respected scientist there. Um, and she said, you know, I think I remember your uncle and, and he's an uncle by marriage. So not by blood, but she's like, I think I remember your uncle talking about problems with that shot, with those, those, um, diphtheria pertussis shots and that they had changed them from the whole whole cell pertussis to the acellular pertussis in the nineties because of these types of problems. So she looked it up in her medical journals and she's like, yeah, I think it's, this is a real possibility that there's injury with a shot and it could be. So, um, that kind of started me on the path being able to, I mean, this is back in the early two thousands and the internet wasn't, you know, there was no really where to go to find information except for in the medical journals themselves. And just by that chance that I'm in the infectious disease department at Stanford, I had access to the medical library and all the published medical journals that I could ever want to look at. And when, um, and they had just fit, uh, been databasing all of these. So there was a lot more up-to-date things that you could actually, you know, type, go into the library. You could just type it in. And I was surprised how many research, published research journal articles from, you know, anywhere from New England Journal of Medicine and on and JAMA. I mean, they all had, there were hundreds of that published peer-reviewed scientific journals on the amount and types of vaccine injuries. And, I would, and in those, you could see that 
there was this high, there were not, they knew about numbers of babies who had died. I mean, like it's, they knew that death was associated. Like to me, that was shocking. I was absolutely shocked that there was this product out there that my child had been injured. And I specifically looked up lung damage injuries. And in some of the journals, I mean, it showed that the younger you give those and as you give them, the more likelihood you were going to increase the injury. And that even if you could stagger them out or wait longer, you could reduce injury. And yet we were increasing them. And I was like, this makes no sense. Why, why didn't I know this, <laughs> you know? And oh my God, how many kids have died and didn't know? Cause like, I wouldn't have known if my sister, you know, I wouldn't have really put it together, but when you've got two people in the same family, same genes, same reaction, there's no denying it, you know, you can, right, within an hour or two of getting a shot, perfectly healthy and both crash is just like, you know, what can you say? Like what else causes that? So it ended up becoming a treasure trove of information that I took quite a long time printing up hundreds of articles and just dissecting the methods, like going through all the methods, going through what the injuries were. And I was just looking at the DTAPs and the, or the DTAPs and the TDAPs, the acellular pertussis. And once you get into the other stuff, it's just like, it's a never ending stack of overwhelming information that you can't believe nobody knows, mm. you know? And when you try to talk to anyone about it, they, I, I, I remember I would talk to, um, some of the scientists that were there like, Hey, you know, you know, has anyone here, you know, heard that maybe this could happen. And it's just like, even some of the researchers are just like, they would never question it. This doesn't happen maybe in a really, really rare case, but they just so believe in the science that um, my, my good friend that ended up getting me the job there, we would talk about it and I would have him go through some of the journals and I'd be like, Hey, I want you to look at this, you know, let, let me get some feedback from you since, you know, he's the expert. And he, the first times we're going through them, I could see this real, almost like, um, it almost like felt like it broke him, like mm -hmm. to admit it. And then he would not, he, then he would like, okay, yes, I can see this. Yes, it's true. And then he would like revert back because you'd almost see like his whole life would be meaningless or something to find out everything he was doing was dangerous. And he would just like, but they're good for everybody else. And I don't think it's a problem. And I think it's just you. And this is super rare. So, you know, I could see that there was a lot of, you know, um, there's just a lot of, they can't, there's, it's something you don't talk about, you know, amongst science. They don't question it at all, even in the sciences. Now I can't say that for certain for everyone higher up. Disregard this one if it's, if it's, um, if you want, but so was your partner in the picture, the father and, and yeah, he kind exactly. of going through this process with you. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We're still married. We're the same father. So it was kind of a, shock for both of us like oh okay there's something here I think he had a harder time accepting it than I did because I mean he did accept it but he was kind of like 
it's really hard because you for he's like, well, I got my shots and I was okay when I was a kid, right? And I'm kind of like the opposite. Like I got measles, I got chicken pox as a kid, and I was okay. So <laughs> you know, um, I think there's like a I don't know. I, I haven't gone through this myself, but uh, having spoken with other women who have, I think there's oftentimes like a real like maternal instinct. Like you know when something is wrong. Right. And yeah, I mean, my mom was a pediatrician, pediatric, um, she she worked in pediatrics in a, in a private clinic. And I mean, she's the best, she knows everything medical about kids. And she, even she used to say, you know, you got to trust the mother. When my mother, when my patients, when the mother comes in and says, my kid's different, moms know they're the only ones that know, and you know your child better than anybody else. So when you see that change, you know. As a mom, you know. You know your kids. You know when they're off. And, yeah. you, you know, a lot of problems is doctors don't trust the mothers. That seem, And she actually, her and I have had a lot of conversations about how medicine's changed even in the past 20 years. Um, where actually it's doctors just treat you like a as a mom that doesn't know anything and they're very condescending and that's not just with the vaccine stuff. That's even if your kid has a cold, they're like, Oh, this is normal. It's just a virus. Take them home. And they don't really try to assess and like address that mother's like, Hmm, you know, something's off. Well, I think it's also really interesting and quite horrifying. The detail you mentioned that initially they told you that they thought it was your breast milk. I know. I mean, isn't that just, I assume that they didn't just pull that from thin air, that there was some alleged. I had a lot of problems breastfeeding breastfeeding too. So it was like even more of a, like, well, you know, this isn't working. Yeah. Like there's something wrong with you, the mother, not that it's medical violence that's been carried out on your child. Yeah. And it was actually the same doctor because it was through the clinic my mom worked at. Um, it was the same doctor who gave, who was a nurse anyway, gave both of my daughter, I mean, my son and my sister's daughter, the vaccine. And we both questioned that daughter and he, he was in total denial to like forever. We're like, you know, how can you deny two patients that this was a result? Did he tell her that it was her breast milk? He told, no, he just said it wasn't the vaccine. It wasn't the vaccine. I mean, by the time she had the, her daughter in the car was driving home. She, the, her two month old baby had turned blue from then stopped breathing. You know, I mean, what, what does that to a baby that's fine, cooing, happy. I've had four kids and I can tell you at two months, like there's no, it just doesn't happen for no reason. Mm-hmm. But when you're a new mom, it's you're you're not feeling. New moms are when you're a new mom, you are very you're so afraid with your baby. I mean, they always talk about oh, it's the nervous new mom, you know, for a reason because it's all new to you and you feel so protective of your child, like you've never wanted to protect something in your whole life as much as your children, and so everything, you know. I joke now that I'm, <laughs> I've had four and when they're older, but it's like, you feel like every day, your only job is to save your child's life because everything feels dangerous. You know, they're so vulnerable. So I think it's like taking also advantage of that newness and that nervousness of being a mom 
and that feeling that you, that, that insecurity that you don't know what you, you already feel like you don't know if you can handle the job, you know, and then now, so you're, you're trusting more that they're going to help you parent your child. Yeah. I mean, um, so this happened, right? This is the first uh, kind of incident, the first vaccine. And I imagine this shaped, you know, the, the future vaccines that your kids were supposed to take. Um, and so I'm curious as to, you know, how that, you know, what happened next? You know, how, how did you? Uh, did well, you... I've, I can say none of my kids have ever had a single vaccine after that. So I have three that are completely unvaccinated. Um, and then my oldest, he hasn't had a vaccine since he did get a couple after that, which continually got him sicker because I didn't know yet. My sister, my sister, um, had, we hadn't been through that process yet. So I was still on the fence. It was very, I didn't do all of them, just a couple here and there. And I had moved. So luckily we missed a bunch of those shots, but, um, by the time I, she had him, he hasn't had anything, nothing. So what do you think kind of enabled you to be that um, confident? I I just, that, from what I've heard, um, just anecdotally, like that's pretty atypical. Like I hear from a lot of mothers who, you know, they, they kind of have an incident. They think it was probably the vaccine, but they get coerced on so many different levels. Right. And they'll oftentimes like go back and maybe they'll delay it or maybe they'll think twice. And I'm, I'm impressed that you, I mean, was it the scientific information you were consuming? Yeah, you're absolutely right too. I mean, the pressure is, it it wasn't so bad with my oldest. I'll say that because my pediatrician, when I moved here, looked at him and agreed with me that it was a vaccine injury. And my sister was able to get a new pediatrician and she looked at her daughter and could tell these were vaccine injuries. And so it was documented for both of us that our children had vaccine injuries. And back then, because this was pre, um, there was not a lot of um, anti, there was no such thing as an anti-vaxxer back then. And there was no, um, you could, it was acceptable to not get your child all the shots. Most of the, um, even the, the immunization schedules for school and I hate calling them immunizations because I don't think that's what they are, but um, you don't, you didn't have to do it. It's kind of like, um, they just don't tell you about it. So it's like this lie of omission, like, oh, these are the schedules required for school or recommended or that we need a paper for. And everyone thinks it's mandatory and it's not. So um, once you find out, you're like, oh, I don't have to do that. Right. And my pediatrician for my son was very supportive. As a matter of fact, when I was working at, I was working at Stanford and it was funny because I actually would see these human subject trials for vaccines with um, kids that would be brought in, you know, and the mothers are paid um, any, anywhere from 500 to for back in the, what was 2008 swine flu? Remember that? Or, mm-hmm. Um, they were offering $1,200 per kid per mm. shot at Stanford. And a lot of times, um, because the money's good, a lot of the, it's very uh, luring for single mothers. So most of the kids that came in that would get those were single mothers. 
and it was extra income for them. And they'd bring a couple of their children in for the human subject trials on these new vaccine rollouts. And the saddest thing is that you would see a lot of the kids had been there for multiple vaccine trials. So this wasn't their first one. Like they have been going there for, you know, every time there's a trial, the moms rush their kids out because it's good income. And a lot of the kids had problems like severe asthma. Some of them had a lot of neurological problems to like where they were in special programs at school. And I had a really good friend that I worked with there and her child, she was a single mom and she was one of those that she, I mean, she worked there. She loved the scientist. She trusted the medicine and she brought her kid in for all of those trials. He did the pneumococcal trial. He did a meningitis shot trial. She brought him in for the swine flu. And that kid had so many problems. By the time he was eight, he was on like six different psychotropic medicines. He had severe asthma. He had severe eczema. I've never seen a kid's skin look like that. And I remember she had this conversation with me. She was like, oh my God, you don't believe, don't, why don't you bring your kids in and get the, I was like, no, I don't do vaccines. And she was like, what? You know, I, I do this all the time and there's nothing wrong with my kids. And I wanted to like, you know, you're on the phone every day with the school because he's having a mental breakdown and they're putting him in padded rooms. I mean, like I was horrified and, and it was years later, she kind of reached out to me and was like, you know, I kind of want to get my kids off this meds and maybe there is something going on, but it took her a long time. We didn't have a lot of conversations about it, but you could see the kids were but when they ask you, you know, your questionnaire, you bring your child back after X many days, usually these trials are very short. I think most vaccines, you're lucky if you get a 30 day, 30 day evaluation for safety and efficacy. And they'll bring the children in and they're just like, so did you get sick? Did you have any reactions? And most of the time the mom's answering for them. Nope, it was fine. He was fine. Oh, he had a little fever, but he's fine now. That's the kind of interview. That's the exit interview. That's okay, check, safe, effective. There's no long-term data. So it didn't, it doesn't sound like you were getting like a ton of resistance, like if you would share that you weren't not with my oldest. I got lucky because it was actually my pediatrician who called me. He called me at work. Um I was sitting uh, at work and I get this phone call from my pediatrician. And my son by that time, he just turned five. And he called and he said, you know, you're, you're, uh, I, ha I saw Soren's birthday come up in the chart, you know, and, uh, he's, uh, he's going to be starting kindergarten next year. So let me send you the forms for the exemptions for your personal exemption. You're so lucky to live in California at the time. Cause California had the best, it was the best state if you didn't vaccinate at that time. And he was like, because we have you don't have to go through the process of trying to get a medical exemption because quite frankly, you, nobody, nobody actually can get those. They're almost impossible to get a medical exemption. So you're really lucky. I'm going to send the forms. I'm going to sign them for you. So, and put my own note in there. Um, but I'm glad we don't have to do that nonsense. And I wanted to make sure you knew how to do the process. And I, I didn't even know about the school stuff. He's the one that educated me. So I felt good about that, you know?
So when did the whole like, oh, sorry, I, I'm, I'm talking too much. <laughs> I think Kenny's got a question. Do you think, um, you know, so obviously it was, you're saying that there was a different time, right? The type of pressures that your uh, parents were facing were different. But do you think that the fact that your kid had a documented a vaccine injury in, on record maybe helped that as well? You know, the pediatrician suggests that? Well, uh, no, I was back then. I mean, he knew my, he knew his patients. He was a small clinic. He knew his patients. Things have changed so much now, Kenny, that, um, that, that our insurance that has my, my oldest is now 21, obviously. And they've removed his, uh, they've lost in his medical records. I've gone through his medical history uh, the documentation for his injuries is not in their files and they won't re they won't put it, they've removed all of it. So even in our medical records, it's been removed from the files. Um, I had to try and go get them when I was getting medical, trying to get the medical exemptions for my other children and our insurance will not recognize those as vaccine injuries. It's changed what they won't recognize a lot of vaccine injuries now. It's almost impossible to get a doctor to recognize it now. It's changed that much. Could you then speak about the change from 2000 to then to today in the normal vaccine regimen of two things? Changes in in vaccination protocols like from three shots and to 15 shots. I don't know what it's been, you know, in the in the last 20 years. 15, and then could you, no, and it's could like you, 57. Yeah, and can you speak like to also also the the changes in restrictions uh, that might have happened in the last just to lay the groundwork for how the the terrain has changed a little bit in both um, if it has in in the amount of vaccinations young children will be getting over the last twenty years and also what the implications in terms of the state allowing them to be in schools or things like that how that has changed in, in this yeah. time. Well, one of, there's some key historical like things that uh, that happened with vaccines. So before the um, 1986, you know, there was vaccines were liable for any injuries. And part of the problem is that there were a lot of the, uh, injuries with infants and children, specifically with the DTP shot. And that was the D is diphtheria, T is per, uh, tetanus, and P is pertussis, and it was a whole cell vaccine. And parents had come, become aware of it. There were small groups of parents, and they at that time there was no label for them, but they were, you know, suing the pharmaceutical companies in droves and winning. And the vaccine industry or pharmaceutical companies came and said, you know, we're going to go out of business. If you don't uh, do something, we're not going to be able to vaccinate because this is costing us a lot of money. And so in 80, what is it, 86, they sent up uh, the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Act, where basically any vaccine, and it should be distinguished uh, that any vaccine that's put on a childhood recommended recommendation list from uh and those are usually by state, you know, it's not a government, like federal government type of regulation. Usually states will select which vaccines they want on their national childhood vaccine recommendation list. Keyword recommendation, not required, but recommendation. And those would be the ones that are recommended for school. 
um, that those get Im uh, they're immune from lawsuits. They get there's no way you can sue them, and so they tax every vaccine that's on that list, like a two dollar tax or something. It could uh, it's something small. I can't remember the exact number, but they give it. There's a tax and that tax goes to the federal government. And if you have a child who is injured by the vaccine, you have two years to try to do a lawsuit, but it's not a typical lawsuit. You actually have to get a lawyer who will appeal to the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Fund, which is basically the government. So you're not going after the pharmaceutical company. You're trying to go after the government for a small slice of money to compensate for your injury. And I think the max payout they can give per individual, I mean, is $200,000. So it's not a lot that you're gonna get. And out of, I think the, the percentage of people who actually file and receive money is something really paltry. It's something like maybe 5% of those who try to get some compensation actually do, or 10%. It's, it's a very small amount of people and you have to have money to, and A, to, to sue, and B, there are not a lot of lawyers in the that you can hire who will actually take your case. It's not like you can, I'm sure if you've ever had to deal with a lawyer, you call and they're like, well, that's not my, that's not my field, or I don't want to sue the government, right? So there's a very select hand few of um, lawyers that will actually, actually take your case. So it's really tricky. And and in those lawsuits, it's a kangaroo co court. There's no like, you do, it's your job to prove you were injured. They don't have to prove that the vaccine was safe. So just imagine what you're going up against is they don't have to, there is no, you're, you have no access to any of their studies, any of their safety studies. You have nothing except for you need to prove you got injured and it was the shot, you know? And then they'll find all the confounding variables that can prove that it wasn't basically. So it's really, really tricky to win a lawsuit. Yeah. So after that came through, um, in that, that's in the nineties, they changed the D, the DTP to the acellular pertussis. You have the TTAP and the TTAP and they, uh, the that's when the vaccine schedule exploded and all of these vaccines. So they've got rotavirus, some places have that. You've got the meningitis and the and pneumonia. I mean, you have, they started adding them all to the list of childhood Every year, right? Every single yeah, year. There's, um, so they did, well, most of them are by age five and then they put checkpoints so that you get additional boosters. And they add, they add vaccines to that list. I think every like two, three, maybe four years, you'll see a new vaccine on the list. Um, and then there's recommend, those are the, the childhood, but there's additional vaccines that are not on the list that you can get on your own, right? So um, rotavirus is one of them that's kind of on some people's lists and not others, but once it's on one state's mandatory, uh, recommended childhood vaccine, it covers the liability part. And so the goal of every vaccine company is to get their shots onto that liability, onto the childhood recommendation to remove liability. So 
they've been adding them a lot. And then with even that with the early 2000s, it was still okay, but it wasn't really, there was a lot of propaganda, mostly with the, everything changed with the measles outbreak. And what was that, 2016? The, what, nobody died, <laughs> you know, that measles outbreak that maybe a hundred people got. And, you know, it was highly suspect anyways, because a good percentage of them were vaccinated. Mm. Um, so that's when the propaganda push, and it was fully a propaganda. I think it was fully orchestrated propaganda. And that's the first time I ever heard the word anti-vaxxer. And one, and one question. That at no point does that ever switch from recommendation to mandatory among among those? Because frankly, the things I keep hearing about are, well, that one is mandated and that one is mandated. And why why shouldn't this be mandated? So what you're telling me is, well, did, were any of these mandated at any point in time? Um, no, uh, but again, no. So it's that's tricky because it depends on the state. So this is one thing that um, with like, when we talk about coronavirus vaccine, what, there's all this issue with the Supreme Court. Can they, you know, uphold Biden's OSHA mandate? And Biden and the federal government cannot make laws for states. States have the right to make their own laws and their own, they are, they're under their own constitution and they act in those types of legislative ways outside of the federal government. And so they, even in the famously quoted Johnson versus Massachusetts lawsuit, right, that says, yes, he had to pay the fine. The lawsuit to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court actually deferred back to the state. They never said he had to fine. They just had to pay the fine because of them. They said, I'm sorry, we're going to, we have to adhere to the state law and the state law says you have to pay the fine. So at the end of the day, it's always the state that makes the rules for what is, you know, on the recommended list or, you know, so some states have, um, they're, they're, I wouldn't say they're mandates, but they don't have exemptions. So they have all the recommended list of shots um, and then they don't have any type of exemptions or they just have medical exemption only. Usually medical has, they all have to have that. Um, and it's usually the personal religious. So some states do have personal and religious and some don't. And when I moved to in California, it had all of the exemptions, which is why we thought this is great. We don't have to try to deal with all that other stuff, you know. Um, so, you know, mandate, I don't even know what we mean by that word anymore because it's tricky language for tricky laws, right? Uh, so when you're talking about these recommendations, right, by different states, this is in relation to like going to school, going to... Child? Yes, like if you're entering school to, and it's just for attending school. Like if you go there at 18, a lot of colleges don't have a mandatory... Or university. This would just be for children. It's just used for the education system. Some, some colleges do. Um, I think I had to show measles, maybe one other, but yeah, it's much more minimal. Yeah. I think actually a lot of the universities that now have those, those all came through after the measles scare or during it because of it. 
So there has been a change, right? Like, uh, or I don't know if that's true. You know, you have kids in school, you know, since 2000 till now, like, how, what about your experience with, you know, having your kids vaccinated? Is it hard for them to attend? Because you're, you're telling me that you have to show proof that you. So that's the thing is I, um, I, I homeschool now. And part of the reason is because of the change with California in particular, we had the change to where we have a Senator Pan who is a total pharma. I mean, they pay for him. They literally whisper in his ear at Senator meetings when, and he's, he wrote the, the Senate bill 277 in California. And what that bill did is it was to remove the religious and um, philosophical or personal exemptions for uh, school age children, those requirements. And, and just mind you, it's it, the recommendation. The reason that the, the recommendation is great is it's, it's more about the liability issue rather than, you know, they'll put them on the school list, but it's mainly because they want to have that shield from lawsuits. So I always like to say, yeah, that's great for the kids, but really it's for the pharmaceutical companies. Um, so when SB 277, it was, it was the bill written by Senator Pan to remove them. And it, it was so, it was just, you know, so great that he had that written within a month of the measles scare. I mean, the measles was still going out and because of that, you know, like it just had happened. And within weeks he has SB 277 written up, ready to present, to get rid of our, religious exemptions. And because of this hysteria around people getting measles, which, I mean, I laugh, I, I had measles. So I'm just like, I'm no, I've, I've never been afraid of my children getting measles, but since it's so far in the history for most people, they have no idea what to, ex what measles is. <laughs> so you can tell them measles is this big, bad, scary monster. And if you get it, you will die. Even though we all, all of us, I mean, I had measles, my parents had measles. I guarantee you all have a long line of grandmas and great grandpas that all had measles as children. Um, we, we come from long lines of people who had measles. So, and we're here, right? <laughs> and, it, and we've got 21st century medicine. We've got antibiotics, you know, we've, kids you can get if you got really sick there's treatment there's treatment for measles but that fear um i i can't tell you how how scared people are of measles i just i i'm, I'm sure you remember I'm, there was a lot of they're scared for their children getting measles um and that was it it was enough to start the propaganda machine i mean the whole word anti-vax was invented for that measles outbreak I remember Joe Rogan had there's if you if you read enough of these uh, pro-vax scientist material, there's two that I really hate. And one is um, Peter Hotez and the other one is Paul Offit. And he had him on talking like how how horrible vax, uh, people who didn't vaccinate their kids were and using the term anti-vax. It was kind of getting there initially, I think, back in with the, there was the AIDS, I mean, not AIDS, the, um, the autism link that kind of started coming out from Jenny McCarthy and her child 
when was that like 2008 or something like that? I, I don't remember. It could have been 2000, probably around 2007. I don't know. But she came out and said that her child got autism from vaccines. And that was kind of as a laugh, like that, that was kind of the old thing. You don't vaccinate. What do you do? Listen to Jenny McCarthy, an idiot actress, you know? Um, so it was kind of starting with that and the whole autism isn't caused by vaccines. Um, but the measles thing really put it into overdrive. And that's when, like the first time I legit heard of an anti-vax before it was kind of like, oh, you must like Jenny McCarthy. You must be stupid. Ha ha ha. Good joke. Right. Yeah. But now it was a whole new level of anti-science, anti-vaxxer. Jessica, you got a question? No, I just had, I, I read a really interesting, just the thing about the personal philosophical exemption uh, made me think, I, I read an article just this past week um, about, what were they called? The eh, National National Anti-Vaccination League, NA, whatever, whatever that acronym is, um, during like World War One era. And it was all about, this is like a recent article, I think it was published just in the last year, but it goes into some of the history um, of how essentially like vaccination as kind of a form of conscientious objection, you know, in the way that people are conscientious objectors um, in terms of uh, military, right? Mm -hmm. um, and how it was so strategically sort of separated um, right around World War One, and it, it was just super interesting. I'll I'll send it to you, Andy. You can maybe put it in the yeah. I actually have notes, but it like this idea of like, and it was all sort of um, you know focused around the military draft and like working class mm -hmm. young men and also their wives, um, and the way that it um, essentially was, you know a working class, like an assault on the working class. And this idea of like, we can't grant a conscience, right? Yeah. Like conscientious objection yeah. to, you know, somebody who, somebody who's working class or somebody who made up some silly story about their child. Oh, right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is I like, we have some papers from the smallpox era when they were trying to do mandates during smallpox too, from the 1800s. They're fascinating. The, one of the best parts of them, I have to say, is that you're reading this stuff from the 1800s and they're like, you know, um, talking about smallpox. And then and the guy just like on a side, you know, throwaway line is like, pretty soon they're going to start saying measles. These these simple childhood uh, diseases like measles are deadly. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you, you know, in the 1800s, he's like laughing like we our generation. I, I don't know about you guys. I mean, Andy, you probably had chicken pox for us. It, it's a silly childhood disease. Mm -hmm. Chicken, chicken pox, pox was like parties, even yeah. like in the late 80s. We we used to um we were we waited till we got chicken pox because it was automatic two weeks out of school and we would like sit and play cards and everybody in the neighborhood we'd make sure we all all of our friends got it at the same time. It was like the best ditch school for two weeks. And you didn't get that sick. I mean, I know people who are older. If you get it older, it's, it's bad. I get it's worse anyway. But um, you know. So it, it, it's, it's, it was, it was a holiday for us kids, you know? Um, but yeah, the, the reference in 1800, like they're probably going to say the um, trivial childhood diseases like measles, you can die. And I'm like, they're doing it, dude. They're doing it. <laughs> Here we are. 
Yeah. I mean, in some ways, and let's not talk about these COVID so-called vaccines, which they have their own issues and their own, like, I want to separate those. How do you understand this century, two century long drive of vaccination and, and pushing it on people and making it make forcing more, forcing more and more people through this uh, kind of pass? How do, how do you understand? I, I mean, I understand this right now in this moment of COVID, but I feel like I'm listening to you. Something's been going on for quite some time that's been being forced. And and, yeah. and Jessica actually had this question because it's also going on in other countries where there's vaccination drives by the United States. And you hear about Bill Gates and Gavi and trying to do this in Africa and South America. Are well, they this, have them. You know, How do you understand that? The history for vaccines, it's just, it's insane. So like, oh, so like if you look at some of the studies and the research on vaccines, like things that, I mean, you, it just is, you, you just kind of like your mind just goes, oh my God, I can't believe we're doing this. So some of the, since I had access to a lot of the grants, um, the grants were all titled by, by who funds them. So you look at them and when you see the, the the grant binders, they're listed and organized by whoever's funding them. And I think we have this big misconception that if it's funded at a private or a nonprofit or a public university, that somehow they fund their own staff. These poor colleges fund all this stuff and that they're separate from the vaccine companies and they're separate from the government. Um, so when you walk in and you see all the grants and they're listed like Merck, AstraZeneca, Johnson and Johnson, NIH, and the, 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 for one study, it could be one grant could be a hundred million dollar grant. It's lots of money. It is a lot of money. I mean, the numbers are crazy. So, and the way that in infectious diseases has worked where I, when I was working there, it's kind of two, two departments under one division and half is HIV and AIDS research. And the other half is geographical and tropical medicine. And with the HIV AIDS research, most of it is funded by pharma and by the NIH. And when you go to the other side for the tropical medicine, uh, most of the binders are under the Office of Naval Research. That's their funder. And when I remember when I was in my training, you know, and they're like, yeah, the university is so happy. We get 70% of our money from DARPA. And you're just like, you know, okay, so why is the Office of Naval Research, right? Pretty much DARPA. Why are they funding so much money on geographical and tropical medicine? Because in my head, I'm like, that's military, right? Weapons, <laughs> that's what I think. So why specifically are they so heavily invested into this field? And, and also within the sciences, um, they're very small little fiefdoms. They're, they're really small worlds. I think people see something like, oh, infectious diseases. But it's really only like maybe a few hundred Doctors. I mean, it is a very, very small, and they all know each other. 
They all attend the same conferences. It's their very small world and everything is so specialized and compartmentalized in the sciences that nobody's really doing talking to each other. So you've got, you know, when you go to radiology and oncology, they're funded, uh, cancer is funded way more than infection, than probably anything else. It's the highest funded. And again, it's this small group. And, and then the lead PIs are the, so if, if you get a grant, you are able to have your own lab. And most of the people that work in the lab are postdocs, recent graduates. Some of them could be there for, that's going to be their job. They want to you can work in university research, but those jobs do not pay very well. You're lucky to make 40, 50, $60,000 a year. And you've gotten, you know, this doctorate and you've had to pay for your postdoc school and it's expensive. And so you're living on this small amount. And and the world in the science is also very competitive. I used, when I came in from film and I'm talking with my friend in science, I was like, oh my God, you guys are, it's like trying to get a director's job just to get a PI, to be, to get your name as the lab, to be head PI. Because if, if all the work is done under your lab, right, you get listed as the primary PI, the first name on the research um, publication. And that is what you want. You have to have so many publications and the more publications you get, the more recognition you get, and that's the more money you get. And if you can't, you know, you don't want to be number six on a publication. You want to be number two, or you want to have the lab and get first PI. And most of the, the, uh, the, and so when you, when you look at the research, even coming out of it, there's always going to be like, the same, like maybe hundred PIs cause they run all the labs and the rest of the little names are guys that work in their labs or research assistants or some, some other researcher in that lab co co-working with a different lab. Um, so it's, it's a it's actually pretty intense to try and get a good job in science and to actually make money. And you end up becoming very dependent on pharma money to do that, even within the universities. I knew doctors and scientists who were like, I am not going to be tainted by the pharma reps. And every single one of them ended up in biotech. Because that's, you know, you can be a lab researcher in the university or you get a job at, you know, you can have this doctorate degree and all these publications, right, at a, at a good university. And you're making like 50 grand, but biotech will hire you for 200 grand on the spot with even sometimes just a master's degree. Where are you going to work? So a lot of them do end up in the, they all end up funneling over into some pharma or biotech area anyways, which makes, you know, the university a lot less pure than we think it is, you know, as far as their allegiance. And the other thing is all of those doctors and, and um, in universities, they do a thing called ground rounds or these rounds, you know? So on Tuesdays and Thursdays, whenever they're, they have these big like lunches or breakfasts and everyone in the departments can attend. And those are all funded and sponsored by the pharmaceutical company. And they go there to learn about the new drugs, treatments, 
and and these scientists come over from pharma and they do these presentations on treatment, disease. So even, and they pay for everything, <laughs> you know what I mean? They pay for everything. Um, so even if you think, oh, they're kind of this disconnect, they're getting educated Tuesdays and Thursdays every week by the pharmaceutical companies who are paying for their mills. I've seen, I've seen scientists um, in radiology. I've seen a pharma, you know, he could have, you know, had his lab and pharma company bought him a Ferrari and he would park it out front in the red zone so that he didn't have to be by cars and they would pay for his tickets that he got every day so that he could park there. They have a lot of money. So, I mean, and it's a small world and eventually, you know, you can either get funded at the university and stay and keep your job, but you're working with pharma to do that either way, or you leave and go and just directly work for pharma. Well, so what you're saying, I'm just going to say is, Big Pharma has been driving this thing for a hundred years I don't with know DARPA on the side. I'm not saying, but yeah. that's why they're, they're, like, what's been going like, cause that's kind of how people see this right now. They're thinking, Oh, pharma's driving all this. I don't really so, think. But Big the pharma, thing is, is like they, there's also, there's a lot of, you see what I mean? It's almost like pharma and government has got this codependent because the other half of the, the money. And remember Stanford said, you know, in the training meeting, for the whole university, 70% of their money comes from DARPA. Yeah. You know, so there's this weird balance of, is it about money or is it about something else, right? Like they make a ton of money, they're shielded of liability. There's a lot of connections. They lobby like nobody's a lot. I mean, California, all of our, every year when we have an election, they always come out and show that the pharmaceutical companies fund the candidates more than any other industry. And, and there's this overlap, but you can it's, you know, but we could say that even with government who runs the government, do the corporations run the government or, you know, so there's this really weird balance of who, who's involved. But um, so, I mean, my personal is there's bigger people involved that, are behind the scenes of both, maybe, and all. And would you be willing to talk about that? <laughs> huh? Would you be willing to talk about that? Well, I mean, it sounds from your framework, but it's like I, I just when you look at the trajectory of like, so for me, I just look at what's happened with vaccines. My experience with it is like when SB277 came out to remove and the the vaccines, and and I have a film background. So I can see marketing coming a mile away. And I was like, okay, why are we doing like, we're inventing, we're inventing another. We've got a term now we can stereotype and we can call them anti-vaxxers. And we're going to create this whole narrative of what, you know, what does it mean to be an anti-vaxxer? When you read all the news, right? What does it mean to be gay? What does it mean to be black? What does it mean to be, you know, an uh, just list every stereotype, a woman, you know, a feminist, or what does it mean? They're always trying to tell us what these words that they have created mean, and they created anti-vaxxer. That's not, it wasn't holistic. It was totally a marketing ploy. You name it, you label it, you give it, you know, a slogan. The whole thing's there so that people can now be othered 
and you're directing it to the audience at whole who never gave two shits about people who didn't vaccinate. I mean, that's the bottom line. Like when in your life until COVID, have you ever said, you know, do you have a vaccine? Because I don't know if I can hang out with you today. It's never happened. Nobody cared, right? Like well, I, I never cared. Third world country, which I think is really interesting. Like, cause the one time that they would ask, like I studied abroad in West Africa and you had to have your yellow fever and you had to have your, I don't know, probably a malaria, I think is, or no, no, it's a, you had to take malaria pills, but I, I don't know. I think like, just back on that question about like, is it just profit? Like, is it just big pharma wants like more money? And I mean, that's part of it, but I think, you know, it's part of why I asked that question about, um, kind of like the differences in terms of how vaccinations have been deployed in the global South historically and today versus in the West. And I think, you know, if you look at the origins of vaccination programs, like a lot of it did start as a tool of imperialism. And that, I mean, that was what did it for me. Um, because I mean, I, I kind of had doubts and uh, hesitancy as they would call it, um, just because of the way I was raised. I mean, my, my parents did vaccinate me, but they were a bit like, I never had a flu vaccine and we went to chicken box parties and that kind of thing. Um, and then also because of my own, you know, personal experiences with the medical system, um, in my like early adulthood, I was kind of like on the boat of, uh, not for me, I'm more into like the natural, natural remedies, natural immune system. But if you want to get vaccinated, go for it. Uh, Pro-choice. It wasn't until I started looking into the way that it really developed like alongside imperialism that I was like, oh, actually, I think I'm anti-vax, like legitimately against vaccination programs at large. Um, And that, I mean, when you think about imperialism, yeah, in some sense, it's about profit. It's about like, continually, um, you know, continual growth of capital. Right. And, um, in that sense, yeah, but it's also like global governance, right? Like that's part of it. That's that. Well, that's exactly my, my feeling on it. I mean, like if there were, there are studies, um, that I had to review there were where they would do experimental treatments, not necessarily always vaccines. There would be treatments and things like that. Um, and this would be in like the HIV area. Um, and the studies were called the homeless studies. So they were a lot of times they'd get people that are homeless. And I, I actually done a lot of work with homeless. Like I, I go, I know all my local homeless. I talk to them. And you'd be surprised how many homeless people are used for experimental treatments. I knew homeless people who would be paid to go clean asbestos out of the buildings of old buildings that know, Oh, we'll give you 20 bucks, you know, and these are great low pay human subject trials to test, um, you know, pharmaceutical treatments on the homeless. Not only that, but a lot of the, uh, which is just sickening. A lot of the funding and grants, some of them were like Zimbabwe studies on pregnant women in Africa for different treatments with AIDS and like, you just like reading the studies, it's disgusting. Um, but even going back further, um, if you look at a lot of vaccines and it, like outbreaks in general, a lot of them started with vaccines first. 
usually the vaccine came first and, you know, it's just tested on, you know, it's the, they test them on the vulnerable and the poor. Those are the people who want to take the money. And then they test them on populations. You know, we, in Africa and third world, like, you know, we hear a lot about the Tuskegee experiment with syphilis, right? But there were some vaccine studies that were done. And then I know one was in the Philippines and I want to say another one was done in Latin America, but I cannot remember where it's been a while since I read the studies where they were um, using the deep, the deep tap shots, the DPT shots as sterilizing agents on the women. And um, this is from a, a while ago in places with overpopulation, it was used for population control. Um, and what they would do, I mean, it's similar to wild horses, right? Like wild horses in America, they've always complaining, we've got this problem with wild horse population and how, what they do is they capture them and they vaccinate them. And the vaccine actually is the sterilizing agent so that they cannot reproduce. So there is a history of using vaccines as population control and the, um, you know, the deep, the DPT and those TDAP, DTAPs um, were great mechanisms they found because they could actually use the, the hormone, the, the hormone that women, you know, the stimulating hormone for women when you're pregnant, it's what, it, what is it called again? I want to say HCG, but I can't remember. Um, but it's that stimulating hormone that they could like trick that into that per, the diphtheria tetanus pertussis shot it had an affinity to, to work well with that shot and you can give it. And what happens is when the, you get pregnant, your antibodies will produce a response to actually reject the pregnancy. And so the women wouldn't even know they were pregnant or miscarrying because they wouldn't be far along enough to know they would think they were just having simple periods and not getting pregnant. So it was a great way to um, actually do the sterilization technique and women didn't know. And their only problem was, is that after a few years, it would wear off. The body would readjust. Our bodies are super smart. They're like, wait a minute, that's mine. Right. And they would get pregnant. And so they started including they Everyone had to come and get boosters after so many, you know, couple years, you need to get a booster. And then when they noticed, like, I think it was the Catholic church that noticed that women weren't having babies. And that's when they started to do an investigation and realized it coincided with these DPT shots and the boosters and that women that didn't get the boosters were getting pregnant and the women that did weren't. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there is this long history with exactly what you're saying um, with vaccines and well, population control and you know, when we talk about population control, we're not just talking about the size of the population. We are actually talking about controlling a population. Mm -hmm. I always think it's important to remember population control means control. It, it, it also, you know, just the point that you're saying, right, about women. Women, you know, are important for population, you know, production and controlling, you know, and controlling women's bodies are about that, right? And just uh, brings me to my own family. and. You know, there are plenty of stories of, you know, I have a cousin who, after a vaccine, 
uh, was uh, a couple years later, she was uh, she had a nervous system issue. So now she's uh, bedridden. You know, she's she has her full faculties mentally, but physically her nervous system just mm -hmm. went down. I have an aunt who my family swears that she had a vaccine and she died from it. You know, she mm -hmm. was older. Um, there's a couple more stories, you know, and this is Guatemala in rural areas that are, you know, very remote and people that are easy to dismiss or as ignorant. And why would they challenge science? Right. And, you know, and that kind of brings me to this anti-vaxxer, you know, uh, label, right? Like the, this stereotyping uh, thing, also imperialism, you know, from my vantage point is about conquering stuff, you know, to take over, to... It's about dehumanizing people that could challenge, you know, uh, um, the structures, the powers, systems. And so, you know, I imagine maybe that is like, maybe it's a question like, do you have, throughout this period, the last 20 years or so, have you found groups, you know, of people uh, where you can talk about this stuff, exchange information? And maybe what kind of people make up this group? Because again, the anti vaxxer label implies that you're ignorant, you're anti-science, you know, that you know, that, you know, you just, and you're crazy, you know, that, that is what, what evokes, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, because it's got the, it's got a logo and a slogan, right? So, so in, in the past, I never had problems. What usually, um, I mean, now it, it's a whole, it's a whole different group of people, but with, uh, think, you know, before that whole SB 277 stuff in California, I would meet people who had vaccine injured children. I mean, and what's interesting about it, you know, a lot of them, they would have autistic children. And it's just like when you ask, we used to consider ourselves, you know, we weren't like anti-vaccine. We were all vaccine, parents of vaccine injured children. Like we were vaccine injured, not anti-vaxxed. And when your child is vaccine injured, you are vaccine. Everybody in your family is affected when you have an injury in your family. And so those and those that know you are injured by your vaccine injury. And so, you know, they want to, I think, change the narrative on that to deny the injury. And most people that I would meet, it always started with a story similar to mine. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I had a baby. I took him to a well shot. He didn't get better. He got worse after his shot, you know? And I, I've met people that I would ask, like, you know, do you think you're, you know, did this happen after a vaccine? And and some would be really open to it. But I have, I have to say, like, just like COVID time eras, I've met mothers who have autistic children their kids, they know it was from the vaccine. They know it like, yep, I brought my child home. She screamed for three days and then she went to sleep for five and she never woke up again the same, but they still believe in the vaccines and they still give their kids the vaccines. You know what I mean? And to me, that's just absolutely crazy, but I've met parents like that. Um, and it, it was a lot easier to talk about, but once SB 277 came and the hysteria around it and the hysteria that your child might give my child measles, there was a shift. It was slow. You know, it was slow. Um, you still, you had some people like if they didn't think you were vaccine injured enough or your kid, you should just get them and get over it. But the, the main key was that it got rid of the medical exemption. 
And, you know, it's, it's kind of important to understand how that worked um, for our times, how that all happened and just kind of the history and the mentality that the way that they changed the mentality for everyone is a lot of people didn't even know what was happening. Right. Like there was no news flash. It was just like horrible anti-vaxxers. People protested in mass at the Capitol. It was never in the news. There was, they just ignored us and kind of created while they were creating a stereotype. And at the time they were having a really hard time getting the legislation to agree with it because it was so strict. And when you get a medical exemption, and this applies to every state, there is no such thing as a medical exemption. So a medical exemption, I mean, you can only get it if um, it has to go by the CDC guidelines, which basically say that only people who are immunocompromised or immunosuppressed via medicine, via medical treatment are considered medically exempt, i.e. if you're having a transplant and you take immunosuppressant drugs so that you can accept the transplant, you will be given an exemption from the vaccine. But once you're deemed no longer off the medication, you are no longer being immunosuppressed and therefore you have to get it. So most of these exemptions, I consider, they just non-existent because they're temporary. Oh, you're going through chemo. But the minute you stop chemo, you get the vaccine. So everybody you know that's been through chemo or had a transplant are ridiculously vaccinated because the first thing they want to do is vax them to death, basically, after it because they don't want them to get sick because their immune system can't take it. So they'll vaccinate them. And that is the only CDC guideline for a medical exemption. So what my frustration and others who are in my case, our frustration with the removal of the personal exemption or the philosophical exemption is that we have medically injured children. And if you go into any office and actually they used to even have them in the pediatricians, like if your child has ever had a reaction to this shot, please do not take it. It's in all the documents. You can look at it on the CDC and you know what? That is not included in the medical exemption. You still have to take it. So even though they're telling you, you had this reaction, you are not exempt. If your brothers or sisters had this, because obviously, you know, it is in the family. My other children are at risk from having the same effect as my oldest, but they're not exempt. There is no medical exemption. If you got this vaccine and you have this, no exemption for you. They do not recognize those as legitimate medical causes for exemption. And this was the huge problem with SB 277. And so what California did is they said, well, we're gonna get rid of the philosophical exemption, but we're going to allow doctors who have patients who've had we're going to include our own guidelines, right? Instead of the CDC. So if a doctor sees a patient and they've had an injury, they will be allowed to give a medical exemption because it just doesn't make sense that you should have to take something that you have a known allergy or whatever the hell you want to call it. You have 
a reaction to that and you're being required to take it. So they included it into the SB 277 guidelines along with special needs children in education didn't didn't have to adhere to the to the medical exemption. I mean to the they could still come in under a philosophical exemption. So it kind of being allowed to have this little caveat to get the medical exemption for most most people who who were like me was a relief and that any child that already was in school would be grandfathered and they wouldn't have to you know they wouldn't have to adhere to the new guidelines i.e. they're not going to kick all the kids out of school that are already in not fully vaccinated because the vaccinated it's not like you can be vaccinated for MMR and DPT. You have to be fully vaccinated. And it's something like 57 shots or, or vaccines. It's something like 20 shots and they're, so you need, if I were to get, let's say one of my older children, like my middle schooler into school now, she would have to have four DT, D, four DTAPs, four MMRs, three hepatitis shots, two chicken pox shots, um, for HIB, I mean, the list is ridiculous. It's not one, go get your one. No, you have to get all the boosters to go with it, which makes it, it, it's beyond logic, right? Like if you're scared of measles, let people get a measles shot. But why do you have to get hepatitis? I mean, come on. It's not. However, the same year that they did that, California changed the law so that you don't have to tell people your STD or AIDS status when you're having sex. Do you see what I mean? It's like a total contradiction that you can, you can have AIDS, spread it, not tell anybody. And I'm going to tell you, I'm a huge, I used to do fundraisers for the AIDS foundation. I feel terrible now that I know all this stuff, but I had a lot of friends that were in the gay community and I had friends that died of AIDS. So I've always been like, you know, very anti, like the whole, Oh, you got AIDS. Ew. Obviously, I guess I'm just not scared of germs like some people, but <laughs> you know, it's like, it's crazy to me that your kid can have, you can send a, a child to school with hepatitis. Totally allowed, totally allowed. You can go to school. I mean, you can have sex with any STD and spread it and they can't sue you. You can have head lice in the state of California. And they consider that non-communicable diseases. And it's like, has anybody heard of typhoid? You know, it was spread by lice. And they do not have to stay home from school with head lice. That's how California works. Like you can send your kid to lice with head lice every day. And you do not, when I was a kid, you got kicked out of school, clean it up, get a doctor's note before you come back. Because head lice is highly communicable, right? Like you have way more chance of spreading head lice than you do measles sometimes, you know what I mean? Like, and it's totally allowed. So to think it's for our health, right? That, oh, but you have to have all this 57 shots for things like hepatitis that are only, you know, you have to either be having sex to get it or, you know, sharing blood, right? Makes no sense. It makes no sense. So. And then the, 
what so but the thing of as this whole like oh we're gonna let you guys come in under these grandfather rules and your own doctor can look at your medical history it kind of calmed down the movement so everyone was like oh great i'll just get a medical exemption and then two not even two years later senator pan wrote senate bill s you know senate bill 276 and that law came in and said any doctor in California who's given out five or more medical exemptions in a year will have his license up for renewal and can be terminated and reviewed by the health department of the state. So they allowed, they made all the parents happy and went after the doctors. So our, we got, we were able to get our medical exemptions, but you know, I'm a mom of four kids. Who's going to give me a medical exemption if I'm going to automatically trigger a review and you can lose your license. And so what they did is they ended up getting, and, and, and mind you, the group that qualifies for in California, we're less than like 0.08% of the school population. Does it seem like we need to have this targeted campaign for such a sliver, I mean, that means you've got like, like 99% of your schools are all vaccinated. So what is the herd immunity number? Right? They're always like, oh, if 90%, you got 99 and you're going to target 0.08% of the population who medically qualifies. But not only that, you're going to go after the doctors. And then they went around and started removing all the doctor's licenses so doctors will not give you a medical exemption now. They are impossible to get. And in my book, they don't, they don't exist. I mean, try talking to a California doctor about medical exemption. The first thing they're going to tell you is we don't give them out because they don't want to trigger a review. And by the way, if the doctor is reviewed, if he gives out those four, five, and that's it, it triggers the review, you automatically, all the patients who have medical exemptions, lose them. They're no longer valid even if he still keeps his license because he's been renewed reviewed everybody under the doctor who has that has been reviewed loses their medical exemption because it's considered maybe fishy i guess if that's even and it's reviewed by the health department i.e. the government it's not reviewed by medical professionals or examined for real medical like hey does this person really have a medical reason that they should no, 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 no. It's not them. It's just, it's, it's a bunch of people who stamp papers and just say, Oh, we're not going to give them. We're, we're going to review them. There've been several doctors who've been under lawsuit by city attorneys. Like when does that happen for checking to try and subpoena all the records of their patients who got medical rec medical exemptions. So they're trying to use these subpoenas to violate our government has been doing this since before COVID. Our personal private medical information and relationships with our doctors for our health records for our kids simply because they have exemptions from vaccines. That's crazy. I mean, that's a real over. Why are they spending that money? Why the target? Why so much? Well, I, my personal opinion is because of COVID, they've had it planned. They were getting ready. They were putting the legislative blocks down 
so that they could implement the program that we're all under, which is the hell of COVID and COVID mandates right now. They needed to prep all of their legislative bills, all of their mandates and everything for this moment because they've already removed all your doctors who can give you a medical exemption. They've already removed the rights of your children when they enter school to get any kind of exemptions. And they, I mean, they've removed religious exemptions. So once this COVID bill, COVID um, vaccine gets uh, approved, FDA approved, because you have to remember it's not, um, but, and it's a slippery thing that they're doing and it's all about liability shields, you know? Right. That's the whole reason it's not approved. Like everyone's like, well, it's not approved because it's dangerous. They don't give a shit if it's dangerous. Like it's been proven. There are no, do you realize there's no safety studies on vaccines? Vaccines, the way they test them for safety is they test them against another vaccine. So, oh, we've already decided MMRA is safe. We have new MMRB. Let's run a trial. We'll give half of the participants. MMRA and the other half MMRB. And then how does the test go? Well, we'll see if there's any statistical significant kind of difference between the reactions of the two. Well, if you already have X many kids reacting and you know you're copying kind of a new shot that's also going to have X number of kids having bad reactions, it's not going to be a statistical difference. There's no placebo. There's no comparison of like, we're gonna give these guys this new shot. And a classic example of this is the HPV shot for the human papillomavirus that they gave to girls for cervical cancer. That thing was so dangerous when it first came out, they knew they were gonna be in liability trouble because there was, I mean, when you looked at the, the data when that shot came out, it was horrible. I mean, you've got like death is in the top 20 reactions. It's not good for a, a new vaccine. And what they did, I think it was Governor Perry in Texas or something. It's been a while, so this is going to be kind of shaky on my memory. But the governor of Texas put it on the childhood recommendation list. And immediately that got it shielded and everything went dark and it's been going strong. And there's like four versions of it now. And they tested it against other shots for their, for their statistic. It's a new vaccine. Why not have your your control group, a true placebo group. There was no need to give it. You know, there was no need to give another vaccine. And the way that the language is around it, avoiding using placebo groups is because they say it's not, it's about that it's not ethical to have a group that you vaccinate and a group that's unvaccinated and expose them to germs. You know, it's causing undue harm for the, uh, the placebo group. So we need to give them something. But in an but, HPV trial, that's well, the same. HPV is really interesting too, because there was so much resistance to that original, when they first rolled it out, there was a ton of resistance to it, like in the UK and the US. And I believe they pulled the initial version of it. But do you know what they did with those products? They repackaged them, launched a huge remarketing campaign and sent them to India uh-huh. and named a whole bunch of, you know, young teenage girls. Yeah. 
and then they remarketed them and ha- and the I, I think it was governor an improved version right and that's why yeah. I actually had that one um, yeah and he 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 was totally funded by the pharmaceutical company and well, lo and behold he puts it on the list even though there were problems and it's been history ever since. Now it's on the recommended list. And all it took was one state to do it. The the thing you described with HPV is the same thing that they've described with uh, Moderna and Pfizer doing in the unblinding, so, so the so-called unblinding of people who, who were supposed to be the control group who didn't get a shot of any sort. And they were saying, well, that, that would be wrong. That, that's risking their lives. So we've got to give them the shot. So there's no, con- essentially no control group. Well, and that's, that ruins the long-term safety data. But with the coronavirus, they actually did give the, the control group was given the meningitis shot. Hmm. And then um, I, I've heard on like some other shows or something that they did do a placebo, but this, in some of the trials, but the second shot, like a saline placebo, but the second dose was they, they did a placebo for the first, like the first dose in the control, but the second dose was still the meningitis shot. And I think they picked that one because the reactions are a little more severe than your other vaccines. And they're very similar to some of the COVID, like a short-term COVID type of response. They wanted to mimic the, the, the common like reactions to COVID. And show there was no statistical difference. Yeah, one one question I'd have is in terms of what you said about um, look, this was in preparation for this moment. Is um, that the the takeaway, like the religious exempt, the taking away of exemptions like that, was actually worse in California than in other states. Mm-hmm. So by extension, you're I mean, you're also saying the political push for this. COVID thing is also rooted in California politics, at least in the United States. Yeah. And I think we're seeing that too with COVID. I mean, we're getting, the, it happened in California, all the states that we see right now that are having the biggest, the hardest, strictest, strongest mandate. New York, are, the measles thing with the Orthodox Jewish mm-hmm. community. And all happened. They had similar huge laws. Mm-hmm. Okay. They lost, and they lost theirs, what, 2019? New York, all the same. They all went through the same stuff. And then you have to look at some really conservative states um, in the deep South. Like if you go in the deep South, they've never had those exemptions. They've had always been strict. Mm. So it makes you wonder. I think that they, they kind of targeted these areas because it used to be considered a progressive issue. It was a liberal issue not to vax because most people on the the left are like holistic medicine, you know, vegetarian, clean diet. Why would I put some weird stuff in my body that contains a lot of ingredients that it just And we're anti-big pharma, supposedly. Yeah, exactly. But now we like all of a sudden this shift and wow, pharma is the best thing. And I love science. That's me. I believe in science. <laughs> so, you know, you touched on that point that I find very curious too, right? Like there's this blind, I call it scientism. Someone quoted that, but you know, it's, it's more like a belief in science and just like uh, this blind trust. And so there's people that quote, you know, those um, 
or make a reference to those vaccines that we've mentioned here as saving many lives, you know, as being good for the great majority, you know, and they dismiss these injuries as, you know, a small cost of uh, science, I guess. Uh, so my question is, you know, what do you say to that? Or, you know, have you come across any of these arguments? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of times you get like the smallpox polio stuff. And I think, unfortunately, you know, nobody's ever looked into it. I, I will say, if you ever want to read really good stuff on that, Susan Humphrey's book, Dissolving Illusions, is, I think, bar none, the best for that. Um, but most cases of polio are caused by the vaccine. I mean, look at, and and in, when we're looking at places like India and Africa, they don't even give the, I mean, they're not even at the point where they're doing actual injections. They're still using the drops, the oral drops. And those actually make you contagious for 20 days. And you're, it's your urine and your, um, your bowel movements, they're having them in the river and for 20 days, you know, other people drink that water. I mean, and then you've spread polio to your whole village. Even in the um, the, Amer the earlier, in America, when we were doing the oral polio, a lot of people were actually getting that. Most of all the waves were from the, the vaccinated to the unvaccinated. Um, and you can look at a lot of, a lot of vaccine Trials, even going back to smallpox, the, sm the history of the smallpox vaccine is absolutely disgusting and brutal. And a lot of people died and suffered horrible deaths because of that vaccination. I mean, it was stopped in the 70s because it was causing more harm than good. And then they just said, instead of like, ad they admitted it, but they were like, oh, we've eradicated smallpox. And it was because it had been, a those diseases were diseases of filth. Smallpox is entirely a disease of dirty living conditions. And the times it was rampant is also caused by industrialization. So you have all these industrial pollution the city, in the cities, which were basically only doing industry and dumping their chemicals. People didn't even have sewage systems. They, they had literal piss pots that they used the bathroom in and threw out into the street which then the horse and buggies would walk through all the horse manure from the carriages and the people's waste from themselves being thrown on the street mixed with industrial, just absolute disgusting pollutants and God knows what. And then horrible living conditions where you were taxed for every window you had. You know, so the environment was just ready for disease. And my saying is always, why are we spending hundreds of millions of dollars injecting all of Africa when we could just probably spend a tenth of that and put in a fucking sewage system? That would solve all your problems overnight. Look at India. They need clean water. They need clean sewage systems. How can you... If you're living in an environment of filth around your own filth, you're going to get sick. And if you don't have good nutrients and you're not taking, you're going to be more susceptible to disease and illness. 
Well, and, it's not an emerging market, right? Yeah, I mean, you're you're not going to make money off of people thriving, right? You make money off people suffering and make money off of people who are sick. The well people with a nice ability to create something beautiful within themselves is not going to make you money. And it's going to be a lot harder for you to get those people to go and do the dirty jobs you want them to do, like getting your diamonds and doing all sorts of dirty, awful work if they feel that they have some kind of way to sustain their own life and to make it better for themselves. So you want a sick society for that because they're better to enslave. You know, it's, it's been, uh, it, it's obvious to me. And then when people say, oh, but what about all the lives? They say, you could see that all those diseases just by cleaning just by having running water and better diets, those diseases were eradicating themselves before the vaccines even stepped in. So it's, and in the process of the, of the vaccines, it's absolutely disgusting how they're made. You know, if, if you looked at what was in a vaccine, you'd never put it in your body. You would never want that. I mean, and you're purposefully injecting viral particles and back to, you know, these, some of them whole cells, some of them acellular bacterials in your body for diseases that are totally treatable. And that's the other component is that we think these, we need these vaccines because we can't treat these diseases. Like pertussis, they scare everybody from pertussis. And one thing about the pertussis shot is that even though it's not an mRNA shot, it's an acellular shot, you know, vac vaccine, whatever you want to call it. It does not stop transmission and it doesn't prevent you from getting pertussis, just like the COVID shot. And most people don't know that. So what happens with pertussis, you never hear of a, a pertussis outbreak and they happen all the time. In 95% vaccinated populations, there are huge pertussis outbreaks. They happen usually every four years. and you never hear that on the news because they don't want you to know the vaccine doesn't work. It doesn't work. You hear of this measles every now and then is this woo scary. You might get a, some spots on your body and a fever, but the pertussis they're telling pregnant women, you're going to get it or your baby's going to die. There's never. So they, they give that now to pregnant women. And when I was pregnant with my first two during pregnancy, it was known you never get a vaccine while you're pregnant. And now, once the uh, swine flu in 2008, that swine flu scare, they were given that swine flu shot, which had a lot of problems as well in 2008, especially with pregnant women, because they were actually telling pregnant women that they should get it first, which is insane. I just, again, you know, because in my life, you know, um, I've heard the H1N1, the swine flu, Ebola, you know, all these pandemics of sorts, you know, very localized, not a global, you know, breakout, but like, do you see any relationship of a push, you know, of, you know, pharma and like imperial interests uh, of, of pushing that narrative, you know, um, or maybe you know, some sort of drug that, or vaccines that have created an actual pandemic. I don't know if you have an opinion about this. Like if, the, if they've created the pandemic for, to use the disease? 
I, like either it was experiment, like they were experimenting on some stuff, or it was a marketing ploy to push narratives. I I have questions on, especially like the Ebola stuff. So the, this mRNA technology <clears throat> is super crazy that we're they're using with the um, COVID sh- stuff. Um, and for years, watch I will always watch what's going on with the vaccine world because I know it's going to affect me and my family directly. And these new vaccines, I mean, they have, they were started, like a lot of them, a lot of the same researchers involved with this started with Ebola. And like, you know, you look at the, there's Ebola, cancer, um, a lot, they have over like a hundred or 200 patents ready to go of this kind of, for like diseases, like they want this to be used they have so many vaccines ready to go. Like they have, they want to make a vaccine against diabetes, against obesity, against uh, just name it. They have a, they've got some vaccine they're working on it for, you know, for depression, a vaccine for depression. I mean, like, seriously, it is that crazy. And I, I, I don't know about Ebola, but I, if, I seriously think my opinion is that a lot of these diseases are probably brought out by these experimentations. Mm. Um, I, I even, I think that with the, this current virus, that it is a bioweapon and, and it's just my understanding of the technology with the viral vectors, because the, the key component, I think with a lot of the viruses is there's a lot of, um, overlap to uh, to gene technologies. Yep. And so this is the part that we're not hearing yep. is the um, genetic manipulation and how viruses are used as vectors to actually trans, um, to, to, they're the perfect weapon to get inside the cell and manipulate our DNA structures. And and there, that's where the real research, I think, is. And I think that's where the real technology is. One thing that um, I've been studying with uh, is with autoimmune diseases, viruses, and um, genetic technologies. I, I've been, uh, there's quite a few. Um, so like when you look at the history with vaccines, you really see this change once we started getting into gen, uh, genetic technologies and biotech. Um, that's when we saw like at Stanford, uh, Bill Gates and the Bechtel centers, and they bought these huge genetic uh, research centers there um, to coincide with medicine. And I thought that's really weird. Why are they over, why is genetic research over here by like the medicine and what's going on with all the chimps in there, right? But as we've kind of uncovered more and more of our DNA and they learn more about viruses, like how can you change someone's DNA? Well, viruses become, this is what they're studying. I don't know the 100% and I hope I can explain it to the best of my ability. But um, when researching things like autoimmune diseases, right, you see that there is a viral component. So viruses have this way of getting into you, you get sick, 
So we'll use like Epstein-Barr virus as an example, which is mono, right? Most people have gotten mono. And this is, um, so you get mono, the virus goes in, you have your, your immuno response, and later at the tail end, you create these antibodies that memorize the structure. And a virus is an RNA. Like if you've got these RNA viruses, they're the best, but it'll, you know, it doesn't go away. It's been fought into remission. Viruses don't leave entirely your body. So we have like bacteria, virus particles, fungus, all in our body. Like we're made of all these things. And with certain viruses, if you have some kind of, and, and so I'm going to kind of speculate here. This is my kind of thinking on this because I'm not 100% sure if this is the, the mechanism, but there is some mechanism. And I guess my thinking is it must be a toxin because we're, we have so many environmental toxins um, that can damage your DNA, right? So you've got your DNA, it's all nice, but something has damaged one of the DNA and you have these proteins that's damaged. And then when the virus comes in, it can actually get into some cells. So like with Epstein-Barr, it has an affinity for the myelin sheath, right? So it'll stay there. And because of this, um, this damage to a protein, it can actually get inside the cell and replicate itself with this new mutation because the DNA has been damaged that it can't keep it out of the cell. So you get that transfection going on. And so what happens is later in life, you have some kind of immunoresponse that triggers those antibodies towards the Epstein-Barr virus. And instead of it attacking just the Epstein-Barr, the Epstein-Barr and your genes for your myelin sheath replication for that part of your body are now mimicked. So you have molecular mimicry and they'll attack your myelin sheath and it leads to MS. That's this how people get me, MS. Amanda, this happened to me with GBS. Exactly okay. what you're talking it's the, about. It's the, it's the other part of, so you've got your central and then your peripheral nervous system. And it's the, that's yeah, what, the myelin sheath around my nerves. Yeah. So it's the same virus. thing with like diabetes. You get a cold virus, like a Coxsackie, and the, the virus has an affinity for certain genetic defect to transfect and molecularly mimic the cell that produces insulin. When re-triggered, your antibodies will actually attack that cell. And now you are continually going to be affected with an autoimmune disease that is caused by a virus that's laying dormant and then triggered by an uh, overactive antibody response. And that, because of that research into autoimmunity that science has learned that viruses are the perfect engine to hijack the cell. Does that make sense? <laughs> like It's kind of complicated. It's so, but it's so frustrating too, because with autoimmune diseases, there's no like footprints, like, you know, kids develop these over longer periods of time and they often take a long time to diagnose so it's like, well, you know, what are you talking about? Like, it couldn't have been caused by vaccines, right? Like, well, and that that leads to the vaccine. Why they would be because you're purposefully injecting viral particles into your body while using adjuvants 
to stimulate a hyper antibody response to that, which then will go lay dormant. And they're a perfect weapon because like next time you have a triggered antibody response and it could be two years, it could be two months, it could be 20 years and nobody knows where the virus actually entered. And it's this technology, if you can make these mRNA or these vectoral, vi I mean, the vector viruses, you know, that's what they're using, viral vectors for this vaccine. And that's where the gene thing comes in because they can purpose, they can use them to actually hijack our DNA and what trigger it with some kind of response later. I don't know. I don't know the answer, but they are the perfect weapon if you want to get into the cellular structure and the genetic code of individuals. Yeah, and, and I don't, I mean, um, and I, I think they've been pretty explicit in terms of like things like the CRISPR technology, mm -hmm. where they actually have this complex that can go in and do site-specific mutations on DNA, but they don't actually have a delivery system for how to get into your cell. And so it, the idea that now we're now these vaccines, the Johnson and Johnson works with the viral vector, works with an adenovirus thing or the nanoparticle. And these vaccines have ways of delivering something into your cell. I think that's another mechanism for they're they're going to be learning how to what cells can they get these things delivered to? Where can they actually expect these uh, CRISPR Cas9 complexes to actually do their work? Um, and it's why um, among, like, again, I keep going back to the, the, the U.S. defense plan in 2018 that lists, here, here's the list. It says that in the, in, the, in the emerging century, when the U.S. is seeing Russia and China as the big enemy, and this was in 2018, new technologies, including advanced computing, big data analytics, artificial intelligence, autonomy, robotics, directed energy, hypersonics, and biotechnology, they list as the cutting edge technologies that the U.S. must be, become the masters of compared to their competitors. And so, I mean, and part of it was like, there's like super soldier programs for 2050 that they're talking about, which are pretty crazy. But I also think CRISPR is also being used in, in ways to, 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 to actually change populations of mosquito, mosquitoes and delivering it that way. So CRISPR can be used as a way to build super soldiers, but it could also be used as a way, as a bioweapon to uh, weed out very specific people who have specific DNA mm -hmm. things that they can then use this target as. So uh, you wouldn't even have to say just the, some of the things you mentioned to know that it's very odd that they've been, do they've been doing these vaccines through this old technology for quite some time. Now they, why would they, roll out this completely new technology, the viral vector one and the, and the mRNA. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned Ebola. The only previous vaccine that was out that was using these strange technologies was a, a vaccine put out by Jackson, Johnson & Johnson in the summer of 2020 in Africa, supposedly to treat Ebola. That was the only one that had been, was a viral vector kind of one. All the previous vaccines were like, like you said, activated, inactivated cells or whole uh, viral viruses that have been chopped up and they just injected into you. This is a very new way of doing things. And it, it looks very much like 
there's some learning going on, but they're trying to figure out how, how this stuff works and the human and various populations are being used to find, I don't know, to be tested with stuff. Mm-hmm. I agree. It could either be their testing with different weapons. I mean, there is a, uh, based with these viral vectors from 2012, I should find that for you. Um, you know, that they can, these viral vector, specifically they were talking about the, and the, and, and what I found for military purposes, adenoviral vectors. And when I, I totally just kind of, and then when I saw the vaccines came out, I was like, holy crap, it's an adenovirus vector. And, and it's referring to DREDS technology, which is basically designer weapon, genetic weaponry to target individuals. You can target an individual and you have control of the inner. I mean, this sounds so crazy, but these are like the military application. This was, and when I was looking at it, it was for military application purposes for and targeting had, individuals on a cellular level. You had mentioned DARPA as a big player in all this stuff that was going on earlier. Yeah, and they're specifically in those tropical and geographical medicines. Mm-hmm. I have my questions about HIV. I mean, but we treat the COVID the same way. You know, you've got SARS-CoV-2 causes COVID. COVID. Right? So who knows what we're dealing with um, yep. at this point? But I hate to discount viruses because I know that's kind of been a thing because I know that the viruses have been used as viral technologies, as weapons and as ways to insert into the genetic structure and to find more about us. So we don't, I mean, who knows what, I mean, none of us can say for sure what they're injecting in everyone, you know, but there's some very, if you look at Craig Bettner, he's the guy that's doing a lot of this genetic research and proteins. Um, He's the one that's been really working with using bacteria to do and DNA, mRNA. They're using data as data storage. Mm-hmm. So they've been researching DNA as, I mean, it's insane. I got into this in like 20, I don't know, 2015 or 2013 or something a long time ago. And I just, it breaks my brain to watch them like store, you know, Apple, Amazon gift cards on your DNA and putting whole movies on DNA and it's all this synthetic DNA that they're storing stuff on and what, you know, like your whole life could be stored on your whole DNA inside your body. So when they dig you up, they see, I mean, it could be that sci-fi crazy (laughs) when you think about it. They say that on one strand of DNA, you can store a hundred thousand or a hundred trillion iPads worth of information. Mm. just to add more to the sci-fi stuff, even you have even companies like Microsoft patenting uh, the ability of humans as batteries, you know, being batteries basically. And, you know, cause there's a limitations as to how much battery bullshit or data stuff, you know, we can store in outside ourselves, right? But we are the best, you know, computer potentially, you know, like. Well, yeah. I mean, we have, we produce energy, like we produce heat, we produce our own heat, we we produce breath, we produce, you know, like so much energy and yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Human batteries. Well, and you know, they've talked about that technology of like, you make your own medicine that all comes from this adenoviral vectors, by the way, where you're going to, I mean, what, what they're trying to do is to, 
and you see this with the COVID, which just gets me going, you know, little sirens like red alert is they're trying to teach your body to make the proteins because everything in us that we need is our, our little cells, then the nucleus and our little DNA says, make this protein. That's what you need. Right. And so they can just make a protein and, and tell our body, Hey, make this pill. So-and-so you know, is feeling depressed, give them a little hit of dopamine or some serotonin now. And, you know, oh, they can't sleep, you know, let's do that. And that's using the mRNA because what does mRNA do? It makes proteins. And right now it's supposed to be making a spike protein, right? Mm -hmm. So, and how do you do that? You need a viral vector. And in the meantime, in public, you know, we're debating you know, the mandates and all this stuff. And, and, you know, I just got a text. That's why I have to bring it up from my, my boss. You know, most of the people at work have got COVID. They're all vaccinated or boosted up. And so the response is right now, I just got a text. Or I'm going to work at a restaurant. Dining is closed until February. Get boosted up. <laughs> yeah, if it don't work, do it again and again and again. <laughs> well you know they bought like six doses per person yeah the country's bought six i mean so and there's a few lines on the card um <laughs> i think well, they're planning on it i i want to go with one final area to, to go into something that's actually like more sane health but i want to see jessica or kenny if you have any more questions you want to ask in the direction of viruses because i was going to actually ask you about like what what do you see as a proper approach towards your own family's health and things like that? But that would be a summary question. And I want to see if Jessica and Kenny have any questions. No, I think that's a good, good place to go now. Okay. So how, what is your approach? Because obviously the vaccine battery is not the way you're going to keep yourself healthy. No, I mean... I have an understanding of the diseases out there. I think that's the important thing. If you're afraid to catch something, you probably should learn how it's treated and what it is and what it does to you. Um, most of the deadly things that you can get, there is no vaccine for. So uh, actually all the deadly things, all the diseases out there that can kill you, there's no vaccine. Um, the ones that there are vaccines for are all treatable. There hasn't been a death of measles in the United States for over three or four decades. And those ones are like highly questionable one or two. Uh, pertussis is only risky to infants under two months who can't get the vaccine because <laughs> they're too young. And unfortunately, if they do get it, um, it's usually from a vaccinated mother who doesn't know she has it. And they tell her to get because remember, you can be an asymptomatic spreader of pertussis. Um, you can also be a symptomatic and you don't know it. And pertussis is a bacteria. It's easily treated by antibiotic. Um, tetanus is a clean wound. There are hundreds of bacteria you can get in the garden or from stepping on a nail besides tetanus that will kill you. So when you get a wound, clean it, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's basic hygiene. And I mean, measles, I do do vitamins because, you know, for a lot of viruses, like vitamin A is, is essential for things like measles, vitamin D, 
our vitamins are really important and our sup, our nutrients. I am a home cooker. I, I make my food, but I grew up on a farm. So I have a taste for it. You know, I grew up homemade style. Um, so I, I, and, and with any of the communicable diseases, I have learned about them and I'm not afraid of them. Like I wouldn't mind if my kids got chicken pox, I've exposed them three times and they didn't get it. There was <laughs> disappointment, <laughs> you know? Um, but you know, my, I have, my kids have some of their health problems, but I can say as far as like, you know, my, my youngest is almost 10 and they do not get the run of the mill, even in school colds and stuff like other kids, they're just don't get where we rarely see the doctor. I mean, like, he's always like, Oh, okay. Don't you have a, whereas if you compare him like to vaccinated children, those kids have colds and ear infections and runny noses all the time. So I'm lucky that we don't get those kind of garden variety things. And I think it's because you just have to take, you know, you have to be exercise. You have to exercise. My children are not overweight. Um, they eat well, we take our vitamins, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's I not, think, I think people forget that like the most charitable allopathic like view of a traditional vaccine right which is to confer sterilizing immunity right is to mimic the natural immune system right and you can, it will never do that perfectly right like or in that, your garden like, you know there's certain nutrients that your plants are lacking right like you know even when you're in a garden you're like oh it looks like it needs some nitrate or something right like your plants need vitamin B. There's certain plants you're like, oh my gosh, I need to give them some vitamin. They're a little stressed out, you know? And it's because they've depleted some nutrient. When you're stressed, you need vitamin. I need vitamin B when I've stressed. I know I'm going to deplete my adrenalines. You just have to know what you're like, how to treat yourself and trust yourself. I mean, I'm not anti-doctor though. There are certain things that I think have, you have to see medical professionals There's certain medications you're going to have to take sometimes, you know, like there's, but it's treatable, you know, <laughs> it's treatable. I, I try to stay up on a lot of those kind of things. So I know what to expect also when my kids are sick, they don't panic. Is your eldest, um, okay now? Like, was he able to overcome those breathing issues and all yeah, we actually what's funny is I was really against naturopath medicine I mean we used I just used it naturally because my mother was in medicine and um she she had a outlook of she she used old Scandinavian wives mother's tells so you know we still incorporated tradition family traditional medicine in with modern allopathic medicine and I still do that. Like, we, you know, you put the baby newborn in the sun immediately. So they get their vitamin D and stuff. We do that, you know, those like old traditions. Um, but I was really against like going to a naturopath or um, alternative medicine when I first had him, because I kind of thought it was quackery. And I was, I was really like, okay, I'm not doing it. And a friend was like, no, you got to meet this doctor. He's going to help your kid. And I had also been, ha I'd had a lot of um, problems with my liver. And so 
I was like, fine, I'll take him in. But this just looks so hooky. It looked so hokey to me. I was like, I don't know about this. You know, <laughs> I was definitely questioning it. And I, I took him in and the guy was like amazing. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a try for two weeks. And if this looks like expensive nonsense, I'm out of here. Cause I'm pretty rational. I was just like, if it looks too weird, I'm not doing it. But, and it seemed weird, but like I started having like immediate results. So I went back and I talked to him about my health and he gave me some supplements and was like, this is what you need to do. And so we both did it and it was mostly, it was nothing weird. It was like adding a few supplements, changing some dietary things. And within like a month, my, my son was off all breathing treatments. And the other part that was amazing was he was chronically pneumonia. He had chronic pneumonia. It was like every month or two months, he was in bed for two weeks with horrible pneumonia which by the way, that's what most people die of, of those diseases is pneumonia. It's not the measles that gets you. It's not the spots. It's the pneumonia you can get. It's not the pertussis. It's the pneumonia you can get, right? So here I've got a kid chronically with pneumonia <laughs> and he lived, but you know, preventing a disease that could maybe cause pneumonia. So anyway, after that month, he has never had pneumonia ever again in his life. So for me, it was like I saw instantaneous results with him off all of his breathing treatments. I was told he would never be athletic. He wouldn't be able to run. He'd always have this asthmatic and need like a some kind of steroid inhaler. He was off everything. He's never needed it. And then I put him in swimming lessons. He did like water polo, which really strengthened the lungs. But not only did he get better, I mean, I benefited too because all of my liver problems oh. that I had been had surgery for for years all went away from seeing this guy. So it totally changed my outlook. And from then, I think my other kids have benefited because I've got a really good like medicine, like homeopathic medicine closet for kids <laughs> that like work instantaneously. Like, you know, you want you got a stomach ache? Okay, take this. And it works better than anything over the counter. So I've learned a lot. But I really, it, it wasn't a big, I felt like I was jumping into a cold pool going <laughs> to a, an outside of, I don't know if any of you have had that experience, but it was yeah. a little. Yeah, I can, I can say more about that maybe some other time because <laughs> I've had a similar like, wait, what is this that actually works as opposed to allopathic, I guess, the mainstream Western thing? No. Yeah, yeah. Because I just grew up, that's what you trusted. Like you just go to the doctor or whatever, right? Yeah. I mean, I did have open minds because we didn't have health insurance growing up. So my dad was really big on using, he was in the military. So he would use military methods, like, you know, battlefield techniques on our wounds. But it was just because we didn't have the money to go. So yeah. we would treat ourselves at home. So You reminded me of my grandma. You know, a lot of things that I, I, I think uh, when I went to college, I was distancing myself. Uh, and this is a conversation I think Lipson, you and I had, you know, when I was in college and I felt that I was um, the more quote unquote educated I was getting, the more distant from my, my roots I was getting, you know, from my family, from that ancient knowledge that is not always perfect. You know, there is sometimes, you know, at least from my experience, you know, there is, you know, but there is some knowledge that has been built, you know, and passed down. And 
you know, that I, I now recognize when I hear these things, more homeopathic stuff and, you know, and, and so, yeah, thank you for reminding me of that, you know. <laughs> and, and I, think, I like that. That's a good compliment. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I like reminding people of their grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, anything else folks that we want to because I guess it's been about two hours and 20 minutes I do want to say that you know I you know obviously we've been in touch you know by, through workers and students for choice and you know learning more about your story has given me a lot more respect you know um, and you know a lot to think about more stuff for me to learn and pursue you know in, in these sort of awakening that I've gone through, you know, in, in fighting the forces that we're fighting right now. And so I also just want to say, I'm not saying that everyone should be a mother, but I do have a certain respect for mothers, you know, and, and you remind me of my mom, you remind me of my grandma, you remind me of my, all my grandmas and, you know, the, the people in, I personally will listen to people, to mothers that will, that are fighting the dominant storylines. I, you know, that, that's what I've learned along this time because it's not just you, it's at least on McDowell too, you know, that, you know, in defense of their kids, because they were, you know, you know, you're creators of life, you, you end up in this path, you know, and, and I'm just happy to run into people like you and, and Allison and, you know, others that are, uh, you know, fierce defenders of their kids, you know, and, and their kids' health in, in, in the future. And so thank you for your knowledge and all the work you've done. Well, thank you. That was nice. <laughs> and I also just want to add, I mean, I think a lot of us feel like we're having to be really courageous to like stand up right now against a lot of this stuff and the vaccines in particular. But I mean, you've been fighting this fight for years, right? And having so few people listen. And I think it must take a lot of, I don't know, patience and just... um like kindness really to just be like yeah come on in like everybody else join the medical freedom freedom movement even though some of us are you know we've been a little slow on the uptake (laughs) well i you know it's okay i think it's like you experience it once you're on the other side like when you're on the other end it's hard to see things well i mean unless i probably wouldn't have known about it like I have this special eye. I read every article on vaccines because I'm paying attention to it. You know, I what is that like observational bias? You know, you buy a red car and all the cars, you start noticing how many are red. It's kind of that sort of thing going on for me. So I've been paying attention. I've had my head, you know, ear to the ground on it because it affected me directly, you know. And I think a lot of people it doesn't affect them directly. And the other thing, too, I mean, you said this earlier, but it. It is really, really hard to stand up to a doctor when you are in the position with your kids. Um, when measles came, it was like, I got a new doctor for my my pediatrician. And every, every time, like, or going to the hospital, with an, are, your, are your children vaccinated? No, they're not. It is so hard, like, especially when they're little, they don't trust you. They want to give you the shot. They want to pressure you. And they will ask you a lot of questions. And if you don't feel smart in your knowledge and understanding, it is really hard. They put you in a defensive stance where you're like, you have to be able to answer all the questions. You have to say why you don't want it and try to convince me that you're smarter than me, the doctor telling you. And 
there it's it's a lot it's a lot i know a lot of people who've caved in before covid on regular vaccines because of the doctor pressure and they didn't they just ran out of they didn't know what to say they don't know and and how to defend it they know something's wrong you know sometimes you just know something intuitively is wrong and i think a lot of moms actually do the mother's instinct for our kids is so strong you know, I mean, like there's times when my kids are at school and I know something's wrong at school and I'm going down and picking them up and I've done it before and I've been right. You know what I mean? But I listen to my intuition when I, especially when my kid's like, oh, that just feels a little weird. I'm going to check it out. I listen to it and I, I'm stubborn about it. <laughs> you know, I feel like a super protective mom, but I mean, this is also probably why I had problems with school too, is I knew things were wrong in school. That's another thing, but you know, I, that's it for me. If it's gonna, if you're going to mess with my kids, I need to know everything. It's, uh, you know, I didn't have them just to like, for the, the world to race, you know, they're very precious to me. So other people though, like if you just have that intuition, but you can't explain it and you don't trust your intuition, you know, you're putting your baby there and he's screaming, don't do it. And you're screaming inside. Cause you're like, Oh my God, he doesn't want it. My intuition says, stop this. This is not good for my kid. But the doctor's telling you it's perfectly fine and you're breaking inside. But you don't quite know how to express that or to trust it. So, you know, you can't fault someone for that. It's hard. It is hard. And you have to kind of be good with that intuitive part of yourself. And then your knowledge, like, do I really know, feel comfortable? I know what I'm talking about. Hell yeah. And I'm not doing it. You know what I mean? So. Well, as somebody who's been involved in like political activism and knowing what it's like to be isolated. um, I like, I like Jessica. I appreciate the fact that you've stuck around to be able to help us through this phase. Um, I've seen radicals through the sixties and seventies go by the wayside. People who, dedicated themselves to a revolution to take on the system and they gave up because of that isolation because it got too much so keeping people who know the history and having them here today i think is really important so i do appreciate amanda you share the what not just what you shared today but the fact that you continue to like show up and bring your expertise to this because uh, there is something we're going to have to figure out about what's what's going on that like what are these companies up to what are these vaccines up to what are these governments up to i think each of us knows something's going up and to put together that puzzle is going to require all of us mm-hmm. giving being part of it to like make sense of it and to make sense of how we're going to make something different yeah yeah i think so and what's sad is i hadn't been really delving into too many top uh, vaccine topics for a long time because i do a lot of research and other stuff And it just like hit me and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to, I need to go back and like pull out my old files because I've seen this, like I've seen something about this and I'm trying to piece it all together because it didn't make sense to me back then. Like when you're reading about some of the military applications in some of these journals, you can't kind of see the big picture. Like the viral vector technology, I was just like, I don't understand how these pieces work. But at this moment, I'm starting to, it's becoming more clear. So I, and I think there's lots of us that have that 
and they're going to have that anyways. And then it will become clear because I still have questions. I wish I had someone else to help me with those questions or read some of those things too, to like bounce with and get a deeper understanding of what does this science really mean? Like this is, it's scary. It's scary though. It is scary science. Like, <laughs> but you do get to meet some pretty nice people. That's true. That's true. As long as they don't get scared. <laughs> That's from me. Like tell I always feel like I don't want to scare you. <laughs> But I just read something really scary. <laughs> um, okay, well, thank you, Amanda. And again, Jessica and Kenny, thanks for being part of this again. Um, and that does it for this week's episode. What's Left is a weekly political podcast channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes, wherever you found this episode, or on our blog at what-s-left.webnode.com. You can find past episodes to this podcast channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you liked anything you heard here, uh, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications to any of our nine platforms on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, Telegram, or Rumble. Um, and if you'd like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, uh, contact us through our blog. Um, so that's it. Amanda, thanks again. Thank you. And uh, Jessica and Kenny, I'll see you again next week. We'll see who else is joining us. It's like a grab bag each week now. And um, we'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.